0: Welcome to Surviving Society Presents, The Global Power of the British Monarchy. In these episodes, we'll be looking to challenge existing conversations about the British monarchy. Often in popular discourse, the monarchy is taken for granted as part of British culture. With expert guests, the podcast tells a story of the other side of monarchy, from its links to empire and colonialism, to issues of wealth accumulation and nationalism, the series sets out to disrupt common sense understandings and undertake a critical analysis of the firm and its various intersections with inequality. This series has been executively produced by Laura Clancy. In this episode, we're discussing monarchy and its connections to nationalism, class, inequality and conservatism. We'll be considering what the monarchy can tell us about Britishness, or perhaps more accurately, Englishness, and the importance of some of these discourses in this particular moment of socio-political inequality and right-wing discourses of national identity. To discuss this, I'm really pleased to be joined for this episode by Dr Sivamohan Veluven of Warwick University, Professor Joe Littler of City University, and Professor Jason Day of Glasgow University. Falu, would you like to go first and introduce yourself?
1: Hello, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. I really enjoy doing your book launch, which I recommend to all your listeners to also buy. It's particularly timely and topical. But yeah, I work primarily increasingly around nationalism, but my broader traditions, of course, race and anti-racism, cultural theory, post colonial theory, and perhaps kind of just broadly speaking, a, a sociologist at Warwick. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Joe. Uh, hi there! Yeah, it's great to be here too. Uh, looking forward to chatting. I work at City University in London, and broadly I work on I would say ideologies of inequality. So I've worked, for example, on meritocracy and ideas of heritage, and uh, kind of left feminism.
0: Brilliant! Thank you, Jason.
3: Thank you, it's so good to be here. Um, my name is Jason, um, or Jason Alde, shall I say, I'm a Professor of Sociology at the University of Glasgow and my work broadly encompasses um, race, racism, um, education and sectionality, um, with a sprinkling of cultural studies, hence why I think I may be here today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I think there's quite a lot to unpack here and I know we're all coming up with this from slightly different angles, which I'm hoping will make for quite an interesting conversation. So to start with, I think, let's maybe kind of outline, if you could, kind of your, your own work and how this links to this topic. So thinking about what is the connection between monarchy, class inequality, nationalism and uh, conservatism. Um, Falu, would you like to go first again?
1: Uh, it's an interesting question. I suppose I would dwell on conservatism, really, and the ideological strand of that. Um, I think it's safe to say that monarchy and, mo- but perhaps more importantly, the queen or the late queen rather has come to play an outsized role. Uh, something that coheres an English nationalist imagination. And by equal measure, most people would intuitively suggest that nationalism more broadly, and certainly this form of nationalism as it's attached to the queen and monarchy, most people would intuitively uh, suggest that all this belongs to a distinctly conservative form of, let's say, identity, moral, or kind of, I don't know, class deference politics. But perhaps this is where I could briefly complicate this assumption about monarchist atta- attachment being exclusively co- or by default conservative. As I said, in, in my own book, I suppose its most relevant argument is that nationalism actually can claim many, simultaneously claims many contrasting ideological uh, traditions. And in fact, the enduring strength of nationalism is that is that through a potent aversion certainly to everything that doesn't belong, be it immigrants or racialized minorities, so-called liberal liberal cosmopolitans or tofu-eating woke elites or whatnot or just general kind of international entities be it the EU, China and whatnot. But, but the strength of nationalism regardless here is, is that it's so, it is so ideologically promiscuous. It has no political coherence other than the idea of nation and national identity itself and in some ways I think the 21st century monarchy the way it's mediated and made into a spectacle, does I think also pay witness to these different ideological repertoires that nationalism also absorbs into this illusory sense of coherence of the nation and the nation idea. And I, actually what I learned from your own book isn't projected solely through a one-dimensional conservative register, but through multiple symbolic and ideological positions like Queen Elizabeth as the stately and imperial slash imperious, but you know becoming matriarch, or Charles, now the king of course, but. Given his well publicized stance on architecture and cutesy environmentalism, as some sort of pastoral conservationism and a champion of bucolic, nigh, nigh pre modern vil- village England, or really William and Kate, you know, as the kind of putatively everyday middle class family and the sort of petty bourgeois respectably, respectability politics this conveys. Or, you know, even just Jack, uh, sorry, Harry in, in his first iteration as a laddish militarism, of course, now Harry is something else, I suppose. But you know, and also Meghan's kind of initial initiation into the family belonged, I think, to a more striking appeal to a distinctly liberal post-racial alibi. Indeed, as my I always say this, but my good friend Adam Elliot Cooper once said, if if neoliberalism finds post-racial concepts so bankable, it is only right that neo-feudalism too would like to borrow from that distinctly liberal diversity capital lustre. To summarise, at least in terms of what I can contribute, I think we see here that just as nationalism can claim all sorts of different registers and ideological tropes, our monarchy that still enjoys an outsized place in visualising that nationalism is also cast in this contradictory range. And I think it tells us something about today's nationalism, that is, it's a politics of everything in part because it is a, 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 a politics of nothing. It, it doesn't care about a coherent or viable political ideology project other than championing across a range of righteous, majestic, mournful, nostalgic tones alike, championing an idea of national belonging and nothing else.
0: And I think it's really interesting that you say it can be contradictory. And when you were speaking, I was thinking about um, Jason's work on Cold Britannia (laughs) Mm. and that kind of moment of, you know, Diana, the Labour, the Labour government and how that, I mean, that registers very differently, I think, to where we are now, um, Jason.
3: Yeah, I was going to say, Laura, um, you know, just to kind of build on something as Valo said, I, I mean for me that core britannia period was was a huge sense of euphoria for a lot of people you know it, it signaled the end of conservative rule after 19 years particularly on un, under the tumultuous thatcher years um and it represented something completely different at a time where when we actually think of the british monarchy at the beginning of the 90s it was a huge point of turbulence you know three out of the four Um, royal children were um, separated or divorced in their marriages then there was obviously the famous burning down of Windsor Castle in which the Queen kind of describes you know, that year as Annis Horribilis and then you kind of go into this new sense of hope and I guess what became really interesting is the UK going from kind of being on the political doldrums kind of socially and politically and globally speaking to something that actually coincided with, you know Um, something that happened across the Atlantic so the death of Kurt Cobain in 1994 very much signalled this upsurge in British national pride which was associated with kind of lad culture born out of I guess the 1990s in terms of World Cup 90 um, very much uh, aligned to ideas around what monarchy meant and even though people were beginning to reject that term and reject monarchy as a structure the one thing they actually didn't reject was um, the late Princess Diana um, and what was really interesting was that was this kind of um, gravitation towards, you know, her kind of uprising through, I guess, a very oppressed system or structure that she was in. And then the kind of intertwinement with kind of, you know, the rise in populism in British culture and the kind of sense of national identity that had been renewed, um, which was really interesting because I guess it, it kind of reached a crescendo in 1996 and then came to a shuddering halt in 1997. At the death of diana which then put the monarchy back into the public spotlight as being you know um completely reading the mood of the nation um completely incorrectly and that was quite interesting because you know there's this unwritten invisible contract where you know the monarchy the queen um they they, they are entitled to good press <laughs> with the with the british media and it, they were kind of surrounded upon and and their their actions actually were, were frowned upon in terms of being heartless and not reading the mood of the nation. So that was a really interesting period, but it also that ninety seven period also signalled really the end of Cold Britannia. Um you know, Col Britannia as a period of time from kind of really nineteen ninety four to nineteen ninety seven, kinda of came to a it came to a kind of crushing halt at that time and I think it's something that people always categorise as in what was the end. You know, the end was almost the death of Princess Down in nineteen ninety seven and then the kind of I guess the the soundtrack to that um, became Robbie Williams' Angels and and, um, R.E.M.'s Everybody Hurts. So just kind of really interesting to think about that period and kind of how... The one thing I would say about the monarchy, they are remarkably resilient. That Their bounce back ability is, is something to be marvelled at. And I don't know if it's because they, you know, they always caught good favour of press or if it's just the fact that actually as an institution spanning thousands of years, they just have this remarkable ability to bounce back.
0: Yeah, I agree. The ability to remake themselves, I think, is quite incredible. And you can see it on so many different registers over so many decades. Joe? If you
2: look at that, it's it's interesting to reflect that on how it's not just the royals that have this amazing ability to brand and rebrand themselves, uh, which is of course true. But it's also, you know, as has been alluded, the fact that uh, they're a part of a bigger machine in which kind of Middle England and its overrepresented media organs uh, have have a, a say. Have, the biggest say in how the nation should be represented and they're also of course you know indicative of how it, the, there's vast inequalities of wealth and power in the country and they you know they are the super rich <laughs> are they not so they they, they sh- it's partly obviously to do with the enormous amount of facilities they have at their disposal in order to kind of rebrand themselves and recreate a favourable image in all kinds of interesting ways.
0: Absolutely, I think what's really I was reflecting when you were speaking Jason I think what's so interesting is you know Diana in many ways she kind of saved them in the 90s but she also, the, you know there was the risk of destruction actually and I think she's, she's to me re, in recent years she's like re-become this symbol and what? I wonder if that's to do with the crown um, but I think that also has something to do with, with Meghan Markle and kind of issues of gender and that you know, the kind of, obviously the Meghan Markle and Diana story are very different in terms of race, but they're also quite similar in terms of the way they portray women within that institution yeah. um, and how that's kind of made or not made around these particular women who enter and leave and, and so on. I just felt like there's something really interesting going on at the moment with that, this image of Diana. Does anyone have anything you want to say I, to that?
3: I was going to say, Laura, yeah, it's, it's almost like, um, I mean, it, it, it happened before, but she's kind of been immortalised and crystallised in a way that... Um, I guess we hadn't seen before, and what's really interesting is that um, before the late Queen's death, obviously it was the 25th anniversary of her passing, and there was a lot of documentaries around, and there was one particular one actually on um, Sky Documentaries called The Princess, and um, it was basically a collation of medium press clippings with no narration or commentary, literally it was just a kind of, I guess this this kind of montage of kind of media um, footage. it was so kind of captivating and telling in terms of you know i I often think like if ever there was someone who wasn't laid to rest it it probably is um the late princess diana and i say that because i can only imagine what it must be like to have lost your mother so publicly in such tragic circumstances and to never be allowed to to kind of move away from that and i guess maybe that's the province of being a royal but i i guess the difficult thing with that is that um, now lots of things are beginning to emerge that actually weren't um, they weren't in public consciousness before, um, to be quite honest, and they were like I said that invisible contract they were suppressed in many ways, and now I think it's interesting now because you know since Charles ascended to the throne, I think what we've um, seen almost is a is a stifling of those documentaries to the point where actually if you try and find them now it's actually quite difficult and you, it's almost like it, it never existed. So I just think it's it's interesting how um things are now taking shape and also the good favour that Charles has actually garnered from a lot of people. Um and I mean a lot of people, you know, at the moment it's been very, very favourable to him and it's almost like we forget what, what has happened and what has passed. And I think the crown is actually you know, I know there's this idea that the crown is kind of factually um, misrepre- is not is misrepresenting a lot of things, but I mean it is based on true life events and there is a there is some accuracy in that based on what we already know transpired during their marriage.
0: Yeah, and I mean, for the audience, we're recording this literally just after um, series five of The Crown has come out. There's been quite a lot of controversy around this series in terms of people saying, you know, how it's portraying Charles and Diana in particular. Actually, I think it's quite favourable to Charles, what I've seen so far. I mean, Joe, this is kind of your area, I guess, in terms of media representation, that kind of... You know, cultural studies, you know, I always use Stuart Hall to think about the money because I think that's a really useful way for us to think about the role of media representation in the the reproduction of that institution.
2: Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, both The Crown and series like Downton Abbey are are kind of interesting because they do kind of engage with social change and historical change. And they, they're you know, quite ambitious in the terms of the, the broad canvas that they're playing with. But, you know, ultimately, like you say, Laura, they are pretty favourable. Are they not? Yeah. <laughs> so they they end up showing aristocrats, you know, in the case of, say, Danton Abbey as kind of benevolent parents. Um, in the case of The Crown, we're still kind con- of constantly invited to, to sympathise with different people in the cast of characters. Um, and yeah, yeah, it does partly play into the kind of bigger idea that the royals are no more than a kind of living experience attraction, which attract tourist revenue and give us something to talk about. It kind of mediates that image. But as you know, as, you, as your book talks about, Laura, there's so much more than that. You know, they're, they're, they're not just this living experience attraction. They're not this just this historical residue of feudal society. They're not just politically neutral. They also, so much more, you know, they represent and they incarnate really powerful material in it, interests which are minimised and rendered acceptable. They kind of work to endorse the idea of the super rich, which they literally embody. And they also kind of symbolise the fact that we don't have a written constitution as a country. So they, you know, there's a there's a lot going on there.
0: I think what your work um, does, Jo, and I think you're one of the first people really to talk about it in these terms. So in in your meritocracy book you talk about you know Kate and William and the kids and those images and that kind of idea of ordinariness and how central that has become to elites not just the monarchy but to elites overall in a way of kind of as a way of you know an ideological function I suppose as a way of reproducing themselves um, in the imagination and of course that takes on a different tenor when we're talking about the monarchy because it's about national imagination
2: yeah no and I think you do that as well, don't you, when you talk about the way in which, um, you know, they carefully craft craft images of themselves for the Christmas photos. But yeah, I think there is that there's been a real drive ever since. Yeah, for, for a long time in different ways, which you've traced in your book, Laura. But there's a kind of drive post Diana to 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 show that the royals are just like hers. They're kind of you know extraordinary, but they're ordinary. Um, you know, they they have a kind of emotional literacy to them. They can talk about Mental health. They can wear casual, respectable, Bowdoin-esque clothing. Um, so there's there's been an attempt, um, a kind of larger scale attempt to, to to show that they can identify with so-called ordinary people, especially a kind of you know middle class white middle Englishness.
0: Valerie, this is maybe a good time to come to you. I mean, I could have t- told you a million times how much I love your book. I think it's brilliant, and I think it's really interesting to use to to understand. This, the, the kind of ideological like, push and pull that seems to go on with the monarchy, and then how that links to these, these kind of broader issues of, of nationalism. So in many ways, mm. like the monarchy continues to operate as this—I want to say a stable version of nationalism, but that's not quite what I mean. But like a, you know, per, there's a permanence to it, mm. um, at the same time of being constantly in kind of flux, constantly about you know, there's a lot about nostalgia in the monarchy, which is of course you know a very contentious topic um in terms of how that might operate. I mean there's quite I think there's quite a lot going on there in terms of on the one side we've got this kind of very kind of ordinary positioning versus this in lots of ways very old fashioned version of national identity.
1: Yeah, entirely. I mean I could address uh, the melancholia nostalgia type thing perhaps. Yeah, I'll address that now. I actually wanted to say something about the celebrity element, so I don't know which which streak to take first. But let's do melancholia, because I think you're absolutely right. There's something about that it appears to stabilize, Um, but I think it it appears to stabilize, but still largely through a melancholic register. And I think it's only fair to say that, yes, English nationalism is largely of a melancholic and embittered variety. Um, And it doesn't promise any real uh, real project, no real sense of the future, no attempt to reconcile itself to a more humble place in the contemporary global order or the working of today's global capitalism, China, etc. And in that sense, English melancholia, English nationalism is increasingly oriented, what, to I believe, to masochism uh, or heroic pain, as Fintan O'Toole puts it in a book about Brexit, without any real uh, political purpose beyond demonization and resentment. So in that context, it is perhaps fitting that the monarchy, which is, however you look at it, I know people have said there's a little bit of a shine to it, there's a bit of a spectacle to it. There's a bit of celebrity to it, but it is still a rather lame and certainly anachronistic dated institution with no sense of the future. And that is perhaps fitting, that it is indeed therefore the monarchy that becomes such an outsized attachment in the English national imagination, which also doesn't have a sense of the future. And, And it is also perhaps telling that so much of the romanticism about the Queen, at least, and I think actually others in the in in the wider the, the wider royal assemblage, w- is was filtered through a kind of sepia tinted melancholia for World War Two, and, and the immediate post-war era. In other words, you know, key features of the, the the Queen's appeal seem to further reveal what people call the Churchillism, that is still English nationalism's most treasured um, historical period or cipher. Right? I mean. A, after all through a recall of world war 2 english nationalism is able to stage this nostalgic longing for an allegedly bygone moral clarity that has been prematurely surrendered or a lost homogeneity and cohesion textured of course by whiteness but also a sense of noble upright militarism it's also a period where britain is presented as some kind of plucky island nation fighting off a historically unique evil and such an emphasis on world war 2 helps circumvent therefore the cul- kind of the actual colonial brutality and white supremacy that a nostalgic gaze into Britain's past also, also threatens to make more visible. But, and I think this World War II nostalgia, and I will end here via the monarchy or not, but it also signals an era where there was a certain democratic and egalitarian confidence about the emergent future, about the emergent social contract, the the welfare state, etc., which is certainly not something we have now, any sense of a confidence about the emergent future. And, I, and, of course, I should quickly note that I'm just paraphrasing here Mark Fisher, Raymond Williams, and others, and how they diagnosed this kind of pathology of nostalgia in the print, because nostalgia for them is, at least for us, it's not necessarily seen as a longing for the past per se, but nostalgia for the future that was cancelled. And, and there is perhaps something about how the queen or the monarchy was made into such a symbol during the last couple of decades that reveals precisely, precisely, that kind of mournful, resigned dynamic.
0: You said it at the end, I think, w- what I was thinking when you were speaking is it's really interesting, because part of my theorizing has always been that, you know, part of the love, and I'm doing quote marks here, um, <laughs> for the monarchy has been around the queen. And I, I think it's attached to that idea of nostalgia and how, you know, she's one of our last living links to that World War II nostalgia that seems to be coming mm-hmm. back through things like Brexit. And now, of course, I, I mean, I asked you all to do this podcast before the Queen passed away, <laughs> and you know, now she has. And I think actually we're at, it's quite interesting to think about that if that's kind of this key you know, pivot for them over the last few years in, within which a lot of the feeling around the monarchy is attached to that nostalgia, what happens now when you've got someone like Charles who doesn't have that same nostalgia t- attached to them?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sure others will need to talk to that. I just want to quickly mention that during the big queuing, I know this is, I'm like like uh, Jason, a uh, Republican or whatnot, and certainly hold the monarchy in no favour. But I did go to the queue to just see people and talk to them. Did you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it was remarkable insofar. There were so many older folk, often very frail. Uh, I would certainly not in any way kind of well-heeled or affluent, though those were also present. And what was remarkable, so many of the people, I, there was one woman I spoke to at length, she brought out a kind of scrolled-up newspaper clipping of her of her mother, who had sewn dress for the, during some coronation ceremony. Most of the people I talked to would reference their grandmothers or their mother or their parents or their father who was in the military or something along these lines. And it was entirely a backwards-looking attachment. And, and that was quite moving in some ways, a poignancy... Where I try to shelve any kind of critical disposition in, in in a kind of antagonistic sense, and just try to understand, well, the only clarity, solace, stability that can be reached for in this kind of wider political predicament that Britain finds itself, and its refusal to reconcile itself to any sense of what it might do today or in the incumbent in future, is to turn backwards, and to turn backwards into symbols that are kind of through the fog of time are given a more comforting clarity, a more comforting, enduring strength that I don't think they actually had in that particular period, but nonetheless.
2: Really interesting. It made me think about how um, so many people would say they were going to the queue because they wanted to be part of history. And the more you heard people say that, the more people went. And it made me think of quite a bit about how there's a kind of impoverishment of history in, in British public discourse and how, you know, you, you do have a lot of these kind of representations, historical representations of aristocratic life increasingly, and they're the ones that get the most money. You know, when, for example, did we have a really popular film about the English Revolution or, you know, the Grumwick strike? There were so many other kind of interesting uh, democratic histories that we could be popularising. So it made me think about that and also about how, you know, these the kind of royal events are, are moments of, of people and communities coming together, aren't they? They're the kind of the way in which kind of collective joy and being together is is sanctioned by the nation. That's kind of wrapped up in this uh, mm. this pretty regressive, feudal tone.
0: I mean, I think, let's stick with the queue. I, I didn't get to go to the queue, because I'm not, um, I don't live in London, but for, I was watching, I think I think it's a really fascinating insight into kind of where we are at the moment in terms of lots of things like nationalism, like <clears throat> attachment, like nostalgia. I mean, and a lot of the narration around it, particularly when um, David Beckham showed up in the queue. We're joined now by David Beckham, who's been waiting in the queue. David, what... <laughs>
3: does it mean to you to be here today I grew up in a household uh, of royalists and I was brought up that way so you know my if my grandparents would have been here today uh, I know that they would have wanted to be here so I'm here on their behalf and on behalf of my family and obviously to, to celebrate with everybody else here
0: but it's like you know the very reason you're queuing in the first place is for this woman who you're suggesting is inherently (laughs) superior to everybody there and that kind of deserves this treatment. You know, the very reason you're there is about inequality. And yet the queue was being positioned as, you know, the kind of this coming together in community and equality. And I thought there was something really interesting there in kind of that that dissonance in kind of, you know, why they were there in the first place versus the way within which they may well have experienced the queue like that. And I'm not disputing that, but how those two things don't necessarily marry up, I think.
3: Do you know what, Laura, I think that's such a good point. and And the thing that I kind of found myself, it, that, that there was a perverse gravitational pull. And for someone that, that I, you know, I, I do very much um, believe we should have a republic. It's amazing what you sought to know, you know, in terms of the history of that particular event, recognising that, you know, probably in the course of our lifetime, it is likely we'll see something of that grandeur again, you know, most notably with with Charles, given his age. But I think it was the fact that since 1952, I believe it was, no one had seen that. And there were a lot of traditions that we otherwise wouldn't have seen. And, you know, even the idea that, you know, the last time Westminster Hall was used for such an occasion was at the passing of the Queen Mother in 2002. And there's a whole generation of people that wouldn't have seen that. And I think, you know, it's, it's this idea of old traditions that are kind of associated with this, And bearing in mind how, um, I guess, medieval and secretive they they are, you know, um, and in in many respects, they were there on public display, you know. And I guess the the first glimpse we got of that was actually last year when um, Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, passed away. And I think it was the first time ever that we'd seen um, a member of the royal family lowered into the royal vault on the catafalque and it's kind of things like that which historically have been no one has seen you know and even just kind of thinking about the kind of things that then happen in terms of you know the transition from you know the changing of the guard for example all those kind of things and you know i had several friends who actually queued up and went there and one of the things that they kept kind of saying was um they couldn't get over how small the coffin was it's it's observations like that and i guess it lends itself to this this narrative that the queen herself portrayed which was that um i need to be seen to be believed and i think for a lot of people it was that seeing you know and the correlation between seeing and believing that you know the the elizabethan age is over and you know until potentially um i think it's george um has a child and obviously we don't know when that will be but you know the the next time it, it may be another half a century if not longer before we see another female monarch so it's just interesting to kind of have all of that in the mix as well and kind of seeing you know that that eye that sense of history and that that sense of collectivism that people find in wanting to be part of something or wanting to be able to have a footprint on what was really a a historic event in in many, many respects, given that, you know, given all the successive change that's happened over a 72-year reign, the one constant in British society has been Queen Elizabeth II.
1: Well, actually, there's something really interesting, I think a lot of you are flagging now. It's about, I don't want to draw, like, a clean schism between two constituencies, but just for argument's sake, let us pretend that there's one constituency that does want or require something of the Queen um, or, or the monarchy. So when they were mourning the Queen, it is interesting to speculate about what is it that is being desired, what is it being, that is being sought after. To, and actually, I do think the very thing that is being sought after doesn't manifest. And I think the Queen's funeral confirmed that in, in many senses. So actually I've been, we've been trying to with Sita Balani and Malcolm James I've been trying to we've been trying to develop a short essay about the Queen's funeral but it's, as you'd imagine is going off in all sorts of tangential directions but what we're trying to channel is a kind of sympathetic critique because what we seem to think was that whilst people were asked to think of the queen in desperately reverential and sublime terms they no longer had any sense of what that would actually entail. So even what Jason says about, oh, the, 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 the coffin is just another coffin. Um, so it kind of loses almost this class, this casteist, this neo-feudal gravitas. You know? so to, for me, what's most important is that, that the affection for the queen became really rather just more an individualized, commonplace variety. And, and this is something we try to center in our essay, but it's frankly curious that Paddington Bear, of all things became so prominent in, some of, in the public channeling of the alleged grief for the queen, right? I mean, this is the deified head of our church, the Church of England. She's meant to be, in some senses, holy, for goodness sake. I mean, she's the sovereign, the monarch, and even quasi-deity. And here she is being twinned to a mere teddy bear, right? I mean, this seems utterly baffling. Unless one acknowledges that the monarchy has indeed, and I think Jason and, uh, and Joe have done a really lovely... Outline of that, but it has been stripped of any kind of numinous, holy solemnity and and other than its place as some kind of stand-in for nationalist symbolism and continuity as you said Laura, we need to accept that the monarchy increasingly looks like another commercial spectacle, another interchangeable melodrama and even though its people might long for something deeper, grander, more meaningful, even if within uncomfortable frameworks of class hierarchy and deference. In fact, what the whole funeral period for the Queen seemed to confirm is that actually people no longer find it that easy to relate to monarchy in that much more reverential sense or don't know what the scripts are. And actually once the Queen just becomes Paddington and marmalade sandwiches, I do actually think that us socialists or Republicans or whatever, we might be able to or we need to articulate other ways by which people seeming need for social depth to have a sense of the sacred or enchanting meaning in their lives might actually be met. Um, when one sees so many, actually quite often working class and lower middle class people looking, wanting to mourn the Queen, my impulse isn't to write it off as you know some sort of false consciousness, indoctrination, etc., but instead to maybe see it as an, an inadequately and misdirected sublimation, if you like, of a more worthwhile, interesting desire for meaning and depth in terms of how we relate to politics, institutions, government, etc. in ways that have become so, so, so degraded over the last few decades.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Valu. and I also really like what you said before about um the different ideological repertoires that the royal family show and use and i guess there are all kinds of dissonances that are being collected together there in their, in their figures aren't they and trying to be reconciled so paddington for example isn't just a kind of fluffy bear he's also a symbol of migration but he's kind of redomesticated <laughs> into exactly. you know a, a kind of much more um, you know easy liberal imaginary in that space and i guess um yeah i mean it's it's very overdetermined isn't it M- michael billig uh, years ago wrote a book about the royal family and, you know, he was kind of interested in the social psychology of it. And he said mm-hmm. famously, what do we talk about when we talk about the royal family? We're talking about family, nationalism, death, loss, birth. You know, we, we talk whole loads of things are being um, kind of mobilised in that space, which I think is is all true. And then at the, at the same time, you, you do have those powerful differential material interests that we're all very conscious of, which is why we're all Republicans. Um, and you have the way in which that's um, minimised and 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 tried to be occluded because their their politics is reduced to personality po- politics, and so at a time when you know when democracy has been so emptied out, when we have what Colin Crouch called you know a post-democratic moment, um, it, it almost feels easier to, to bond with the royals because they are presenting an image of being beyond politics too.
0: You're saying something, I think both of you there have kind of said something about intimacy and i think that it's so interesting to think about kind of you know you're talking about the coffin and how it's it's much smaller than we expected and this Mm. need to kind of be near it and need to see it in order to believe it but then of course that's been um that's been a risk of monarchy for all this time so even like that padding you know attaching the queen to paddington and like you said it's attaching you know something that is meant to be mysterious an institution to Mm. something that is kind of so normal place and that's a that's the tension that the monarchy has been you know struggling with for well, hundreds of years, but particularly since you know, the advent of, of different types of media. So television in the 50s, and then we moved to tabloids and so on. And that, I think that's something that they've continually been negotiating. And social media presents new risks in that way. So, I mean, within, within less than a week of trials coming in, we'd had those videos... I don't know if rem- anyone remembers of him getting quite cross because his pen wasn't <laughs> in the right place. Yeah. <laughs> um, and imagine, imagine seeing that for the queen, like you just would not in all of the years of her reign. So there's something, I think there's something quite interesting in how all of this, the stuff about politics, so on, like merges with things around technology, yeah. and kind of moving technology and what that affords them, because I think it affords them an awful lot actually, um, but also what the potential risks of that are for, of, of that are and how they, they and us are kind of continually negotiating those boundaries in order to keep that mystique, but also to maintain that kind of access and that, you know, need to be in that room with her coffin, or you know, need to be filing past it or whatever else.
1: I mean, on a on a very quick tangent, I do think it is being over visible will, in time, strip it of any residual aura that it does become. Uh, a, a more fragile, uh, uh, untenable institution, or at least bond. I mean, it's interesting, in Japan, when Emperor Hirohito, uh, due to kind of American semi-colonialism, to be honest, um, but, you know, uh, uh, subsequent to the World War II victory over uh, the Japanese forces, they demanded that Hirohito, Emperor Hirohito, declare that he isn't a god. And this is the famous humanity declaration. Oh, I think that's what it's called. Uh, And what's interesting is that the imperialist factions in Japan, which are still reasonably strong, the imperialist nationalist factions in in Japan, uh, nurse this wound. But they, they have a valid question. They go, well, what's the point of you if you're just a human? Why do we have an emperor if you cannot offer or promise anything with a much greater sense of sacrality and grandeur? And the digital era, you're absolutely right, there are affordances that they can exploit, they can present themselves as everyday, they can create a bit of spectacle, sensation, cutesiness around themselves. But over the virality of the digital also makes them just another transient sensation in our otherwise sa- saturated informational, televisual sphere. And I'm not entirely sure uh, the monarchy can endure that going forwards, unless, unless it continues to write itself as the central anchor, institutional nostalgic marker, uh, of, uh, or a synecdoche of the English nation. British nation, English nation, now that's an interesting question too.
3: Do, do you know what I would, I would say to that? I, I totally agree and hear what you're saying, but I, I actually think um, the unravelling of some of the mystique of the royal family, I think it's actually strengthened nationally people's um, belief that this is an anchor of British society, and this is an anchor Mm. globally, and it's still the hallmark of British society. I think there was something really interesting about, in the same way that we've seen how identity politics is used to strengthen and create cohesion amongst Britons, you know, Brexit, for example, you know, these kind of contexts that in many respects cause people much, much harm, but weirdly bring people closer together in a united uh, way. I think, I actually think that, you know, the Queen, to use your term, I think she probably has reached demigod status um, and sainthood, if there is such a thing, because um I think apart from anything else, like, that favour that she had is actually kind of transmitted to Charles, and as though we're in this kind of absentee where we completely have forgotten all the things that have happened with Charles in terms mm-hmm. of... A lot of his behaviours, which, to be quite frank, have been quite unsavoury, and I think that's kind of neatly been packaged and forgotten. and And I actually think it's strengthened the resolve of people that you know the monarchy is something that is uniquely British. The rest of the world very much panders to that in a way that there are other monarchies around the world that don't have the same idealisation, the same kind of euphoria attached to it. I'm not sure.
2: Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting and it makes me think about how, despite Charles's professed wish for a slim down monarchy, in fact, now you have this enormous amount of media coverage across the whole family. It's almost become, you know, much more of a dynasty style soap opera than it was, say, ten years ago, which is kind of interesting itself in terms of, you know, how it fe- feeds the celebrity media churn. But also, I guess, thinking about what you said, Laura, about the, you know, the dangers of social media. Um, another way to look at that is to think about how the critiques um, can, can erupt from interesting places as well. So I was thinking about Stacey Solomon for the X Factor singer who's on Loose Women now, I had that that clip that went viral. I'm probably going to be, like, of the opinion of nobody else in the whole entire world, but I just don't get it. I don't get any of it. <laughs> what I'm, do you like, mean? You don't in, get what? Yeah. I don't get why we're so obsessed with these humans that are exactly the same. Like, it could be us four sitting there. I just don't get it. But I'm, are you talking about, what, you mean, as royals? Or yeah. as, like, Kim Kardashian? Because for I, me, they're becoming celebrities. Well, yeah, to me, that, that's all they are. The queen, is it, is is it, their is, celebrity. for me, is... Brilliant. I but love the what? Queen. Yeah. What, how, what you know, duty, responsibility. She's always worked ahead. really hard. But I would she? work hard if the whole country paid for me to have like 12 houses and work really but hard. That, they don't, no, they don't pay for all of the houses, but just a few. <laughs> So it was it was a really kind of interesting way in which that, you know, narrative of the, the Queen deserving her wealth, you know, working hard and being meritocratic, it was just kind of completely taken down by a quite mainstream source. So, yes. I love that clip.
0: That's one of my favourite clips. <laughs> <laughs> just because it's someone you don't expect to say it. And I think that has a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot can be attached to that then when it's kind of someone that you don't expect to, to come out and say that.
1: Yeah. But, but isn't that perhaps what we're confirming here? As for uh, in the younger generations, they only experience the queen and other members of the royal family as a wider cast, and the crown as the Netflix sensation, as another kind of celebrifying interchangeable entity. And it kind of confirms that, I think the age gap in kind of affection around monarchism and Republicans and rep- uh, respectively is pretty stark. Um, and I think it just confirms, in my opinion at least, the terms by which the Queen has been related to, that the younger generation do see it as another occasional feature on their Instagram, TikTok feed, and the kind of the general AI circulation, and often in mockery or jest, or as fiction, i.e., not fiction, but as televisual spectacle. That is to say, the crowd and things like that. And mm-hmm. I'm, I, I'm not entirely sure that what everything we've rightly said, the kind of the way it places itself in English nationalism and so on. It's doing the same translation work to a younger generation who haven't had that mass society, high modernist socialisation into the, uh, the monarchy as me- having greater meaning beyond a set of characters that we read about.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's true. And there's also it's there is a big leap between disillusionment with the monarchy or non-interest in the monarchy and campaigning for its abolition.
0: So there's conversation to be had around that as well. I think there's something very specific about Britishness and Englishness as well and the differences between those two and how those things are often conflated, which I think could be another really interesting conversation. Uh, We could talk about this all day, but I think it's time to wrap up. So thank you so much, everybody, for this really interesting conversation. And thank you, everybody, for listening. (laughs) Thank you for listening to The Global Power of the British Monarchy. Guest executively produced by Laura Clancy. You can keep up with Surviving Society on Twitter, Instagram, Apple Podcasts and Spotify.